Welcome to the Covert Narcissism Podcast. I'm your host, Renee Swanson. I'm Ross Rosenberg, the author of The Human Magnet Syndrome and the creator of the Codependency Cure and the Healing the Inner Trauma Child Trauma Resolution Method. I welcome to my YouTube channel. Today, I'm excited because Renee Swanson and I are doing our second collaboration or discussion, and she gracefully and generously agreed to be a guest on my podcast or YouTube channel, and she's going to talk about covert narcissism and how her own story molded her, informed her, led her into better understanding a problem that so few people truly have a mastery over and be able to help others because of that. But what I like to do, if if that's okay with you, Renee, can you let um, our listeners and viewers know a little bit about yourself and what you do? Absolutely. Ross, thank you. And it is a pleasure to be here. Um, I am Renee Swanson. I um, I offer life coaching. I'm a, I'm a coach that specializes now with victims of covert narcissistic abuse. And I've been running a podcast, actually, for quite some time, the Covert Narcissism Podcast. And uh, I actually started on YouTube, but I decided and found out real quick that that wasn't my strength. And uh, when I got into podcasting, that seemed to really connect for me. And so podcasting is is kind of where I landed in that. Tell me a little bit more about um, what you do as a coach. And uh, we were talking right before I hit the record button about you have um, a practice or a group you started. Um, what I do. Tell us a little bit more about that. Sure, I do. It started actually as a Facebook group, and it was just a Facebook group so that I could find out, you know, I knew I couldn't be alone out there in this world. Mm -hmm. And so I started a Facebook group with a friend of mine who she didn't have anything to do with covert narcissism, but you got to have a person to start a group with. So I started it with her. And it just exploded on me, um, you know, with people telling their stories and reaching in and, and all of that. And and uh, over time, that group's called Covert Narcissism Group. And over time, I, it actually just kind of shortcut to CNG. And uh, and so I actually now run CNG Life Coaching. And that group is, you know, 58,000 people. But in, uh, wait, in wait, my wait, 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 practice group? now. Wait, wait, wait. I think group, I think your practice. What? You have 58,000 people working with you. No, there's no way. Otherwise, this is the Facebook group. Yes. Okay. okay. I'm sorry. You're 50. Okay. Yes. Please. This is the Facebook group. It's it's reached the level of 58,000 people. So I have a team of moderators that helped me to moderate that. Originally, I was doing all of it and uh, it just became overwhelming, you know, really fast and, and right. too much, too much time to try to monitor all of that. But um, but the the then where that be led to was for me to get the training that I needed as a life coach and to start setting up individual coaching sessions and group coaching sessions. And so the the services that I offer, you know, that are that are paid services as opposed to the, you know, the Facebook group, there's no charge to be in there. The podcast, all of that yeah. is just what I offer to this world. But the individual sessions and the coaching sessions, uh, the individual and group coaching sessions is where we really get into the nitty gritty of that healing journey. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. And people uh, are going to list her contact information links um, at um, in the details uh, sections of the video or the podcast. Um, I came up with this idea that I wanted to hear your story. 
But before I say why I thought about that, I, I wanted to tell you a story. Uh, when I first wrote the book, The Human Magnet Syndrome, I wrote a biographical piece. And uh, is with the publisher who did not want me to put it in the book. And because I was a new author and I had little say with what I had to do, they um, pretty much um, strongly pushed me into putting it in the epilogue. And I don't know about you, but a lot of people don't read epilogues. And <laughs> I actually do. I'm one of those weird people that do. So. <laughs> well, I do too. Maybe more people read it than not. And and when I it came to writing the second edition, I expanded uh, my biographical piece, and, and I think I called it "Stop Passing the Baton" and used the analogy of a track team where um, each each participant passes the the baton off, and of course you try to win the race. And it became this really complicated ch chapter about four generations of my family. And I had this idea that I wanted to entice the reader um, to read further by having them understand that this is a problem that not only affects us, and for me it was codependency, but impacts all the generations um, to come and um, is reflective of all the generations behind us. And that this was not just a personal problem, but a problem that impacts the world, especially a person's world. And I kind of had the idea that the publisher had put in my head that no one wants to hear that. But I didn't listen to that. And it ended up being a resounding success because everyone who read the book told me how important the first chapter was. So I tell you that story because I think people really value the story behind the person. What happened to them that molded them that created their desire their ambition their uh, their focus on becoming the healer the coach the psychotherapist and i would love for you to share your story um, with the listeners or the viewers about your own experience um, in surviving covert narcissism and how that shaped you to become the magnificent, wonderfully qualified and talented woman that you are. Well, Ross, thank you for and thank you for saying that. And I and thank you for sharing that story, because I think it is crucial to realize, um, you know, what brings us to who we are today and how then, you know, even especially then in raising our own kids, how that filters into their life and their kids and their kids, because this is a generational I've called it a generational curse. Uh, of just a repeated pattern. It's a repeated right. pattern throughout so many families. Yeah, I, and I, so I'm, I'm happy to share my story. So, so when did it all start for you? Oh, it started for me back at birth. There is no doubt about that at all. Um, I was raised in the church, um, mm. in a in a southern church. My dad actually is is a preacher, and uh, very much so was raised in the in the, you know, the church environment. And I was absolutely taught that uh, it was my job to help everyone around me, to keep people happy, to be the peacemaker, to put my needs aside, to care for them, to put my feelings aside, to care for them. And I took it to heart. Um, I grew up a 
in essence, a missionary. Like it was my mission to help other people. And when I look at, you know, my my parents' marriage, which by the way, they just celebrated 60 years um, mm-hmm. just this last week. And 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 they have a beautiful relationship and a beautiful marriage. But but when I look at my childhood in that environment. I never saw them argue. I never saw them disagree. I never, it, it was a perfect marriage. And um, I, a, so I grew up just breathing. How does a do perfect what? marriage create a child who will eventually fall in love with a narcissist? And and I say this just to just ask you, was there parts of your childhood? Because you said you, um, you like naturally were this giver or this helper. And, and and from my point of view, and it doesn't have to be yours, is that children learn to be givers and helpers and sacrificers because they they feel like that's how they get the most love and attention. Um, did you can you trace back your attraction to the covert narcissist to your childhood, or do you think that that doesn't really apply um, in your case? It very much so applies. Um, I, for me, I earned that love by then. I got the approval of the church. I got mm-hmm. the approval of you know um, God's love. What was what was envisioned to me as God's love, and and so I very much so um, became that people pleaser because that was my role in life. Not because I mean it's natural for me to be compassionate. I have that is always definitely there. You know, I have my my father's compassion, but the role when people ask me who was your narcissistic parent for me it was the church right and and the 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 church became you know that that overseer that was always judging always um superior always entitled always demanding my attention and my time and um and so that was the tiptoeing i was doing was around the church it's interesting you you said you know i can't help being a, a psychotherapist and it drives my friends crazy. But you said a word, you said a word. Um, um, your role was envisioned. You said, quote, my role, this role was envisioned for me. And 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 to me, that's probably that's a clue to what you're saying is that that you kind of grew up in an environment where people had um an idea of what you're supposed to be. And and that could have very well led you in a direction to to not have a really clear sense of yourself and your self needs. <laughs> it very much so did. I did not have a clear sense of my own needs because some of the things I was taught was, you know, I'm never allowed to be angry or upset because Christians don't get angry. Um, I'm not allowed to worry or fret because Christians don't worry. That means your faith isn't strong enough. So if I became angry or frustrated over something, the self-judgment was immediate. Of uh, That must mean that I'm not a strong enough Christian and I have to go make things right with God. And so I wasn't allowed to be angry. I couldn't allow myself to be angry. Yeah. And so, so someone distorted the, the gospel um, to fit. Yeah a belief that you should control parts of, that are very human um, mm-hmm. to try to push those down or, or discourage them. And, and that's really sad that you didn't get a chance to um, be free in the expression of your life and feelings and reactions to it. Right. 
Right. And when I say that, you know, I never saw my parents fight or argue or disagree, that's very true. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what it did for me, while that can be good and that can be seen as healthy, what it did for me was it created a belief in me that a husband and wife never fight. They never argue. They never disagree. Okay. Well, now here comes reality. And I'm in my marriage, and of course we're going to disagree because everybody goes through this. But the first time we disagreed, I was horrified that something was wrong with me, and it was my job to fix this because I thought that meant our marriage was at risk. And so I would dive in as fast as I could to fix it, which meant I would just give in. Like, okay, no, 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 you just do it your way, and I would fawn all over him. But it was immediate, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. Right. I thought that was my role. Yeah, it actually reminds me of an article I read years ago. I don't know if it's true or it was an accurate article, but it said um, because of the Japanese culture's fastidiousness about washing hands and antiseptics and germs, that they found that the kids were growing up with weakened immune systems because they didn't get to, their body didn't get to face the natural challenges out there. So mm-hmm. analogously, um, if your parents got along and did, and everyone was so happy, you didn't get the natural challenges that um, children get in order to learn things, you know. Right. And right. So, and I see even that. in my even in my friendships, I remember as a in college. So I'm now in, you know around the age of twenty, and if I had a friend that I really disagreed with, I remember just being heartbroken that it meant my friendship was over. It was so extreme, such a, a strong, catastrophic thinking of, you know, well, it just means that this friendship's over. I'm going to lose them as a friend. They're never going to, you know, they're never going to stick around. They're never going to care for me. And it didn't prove to be true. But every single time there was a disagreement, that's where my mind and my heart went. So you had an abandonment response um, yes. that, that if something went wrong, you immediately thought it was your fault and thought if you didn't correct it you would lose that. Yes. And then I would cling like crazy to fix it. You know, then I've got to be the one to fix all it all. And so that's fed right into a marriage with a covert narcissist, of course. And because this is not a therapy session, thankfully to you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And maybe it should be. (laughs) No, no, but but I would suggest, and let's not go in that direction, but I would suggest that um, that lack of experience, that a fear of abandonment that need to make everything right um, represents your childhood as you as you pointed out your experience with the church um, mm-hmm. and so so you're in college and you're um, very sensitive and uh, especially to um, someone not liking you or abandoning you and so how how did that if if it did, did that type of pattern lead you into being attracted to what someone would be uh, would end up being a narcissist or or covert narcissist? So so yes, when um you know when I got out of college, I didn't meet my future husband until I was I want to say about 24, 25. I'd have to go back and do the the math again, but it was definitely after college. You know, I'd been out for a couple of years, and um when I first met him it it was an immediate hook like he liked everything i liked he wanted everything i wanted he seemed to be just 
the perfect match for me. And at this point, I was so eager for a relationship. Like I was just terrified I'm going to live alone forever. I mean, the things you go through in your mid-20s. And and I was eager to, you know, I want to raise a family. And, and so there was some eagerness that maybe the abandonment issue of, okay, nobody's ever going to love me. Nobody's ever. Right. And so there was a combination of all of that going on. And then here I meet this guy who, again, like he, everything I said I liked, he's like, oh, wow, I like that too. And it just seemed to be such an immediate hook that then I was doing everything in my effort to keep him. I was doing everything in my effort to please him, to, you know, I'd always said I would date for at least two years, two years before I'd even consider marrying someone. We dated for four months. So four months. Basically, it's the human magnet center. By the way, the human magnet center, in my opinion, governs all relationships, healthy or not. But there was this intuitive feeling of of a fit, opposite personalities, um, and it was it felt perfect. It delivered you away from insecurity or fear of being alone. It probably delivered him away from it too, and this great attraction. But he's already painting a picture of himself that is not based upon who he really is, but what he believes you want to know in order to get you to fall right. in love with him. Right. Yes, very much so. It was, you know, he was finding the things to say that he believed I wanted in, right. in a relationship. And I know we all do that to some extent. Oh, yeah, of course. But- yeah, you you want this other person to be happy with you. And so we all give a little bit in that regard, but it was everything, everything to the T and to the extreme. So we, you all... know, I, I was a classical musician and all of a sudden, you know, that's all, that's all I've ever listened to. And that's all, well, none of that proved to be true. Oh, so we all put on our best face when we meet someone and, mm-hmm. um, and, and, one of my jokes is um, it might take six months to a year before we um, forget to put the, the toilet seat down or pick up our underwear or put our underwear down on the ground. But everyone normally puts their best face forward, and that's normal. But sure. Was it sounded like he was making things up to it to get you to trust him? That I mean, essentially were lies. Right. Right. And it, it's one thing where, you know, if you say to somebody, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a classical musician and I'm, I'm studying classical music and, and the other person says, you know, hey, I've always kind of wanted to learn more about that. That's great. Can you can you teach? That's different than, oh, that's all. I, that's what I've listened to all my life. And I've that's different. So, yeah. So he's setting you up like the, the con man, the, the salesman. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Um, as as I pointed out, have some sociopathic qualities. Some are more sociopathic than others, but so he is he is making himself look like the perfect one. So so right. you tell more. So and, and so what happens is when we're in these, you know, and, and for me, I know I didn't ever actually see him for who he really was. You know, all I'm seeing is actually who I want to see. <laughs> And who I wanted to see was this perfect match, this soulmate or this, you know, my wonderful husband. And and that's what I saw. And so then things happen like he might be sharp tongued with somebody else. Like I would see that he'd get sharp tongued when we were with some friends or when we were, you know, out in public. And I remember thinking, well, but he's not that way with me. Right. And so it was easy to kind of somehow that makes it okay. 
I don't, and and that should never be okay. Okay. But, but I somehow allowed that to be okay because I found myself thinking, well, at least he's not, he's not like that with me. If you were thinking, Hey, at least they aren't like that with me. It's Mm -hmm. just a matter of time. (laughs) So, yeah. And so, so he is calculating how much he needs to be with you in order to keep you connected and hooked. And because he really is a narcissist, there's the parts of him his mask falls off with other people and yes you're you're feeling secure because you think well it's for them not me and and you're being very hopeful um and uh so what what happened next i mean what was the next uh phase Mm -hmm. of of that relationship so we we got married we were madly in love we were the perfect couple everybody looked at us like we were just such a great fit for each other and i want to tell you the honeymoon phase actually lasted a really long time Mm -hmm. um now it was because i could never let an argument happen like i was do it no how long did it last i'm gonna say that honeymoon phase if you want to call it a honeymoon phase it's also rose-colored glasses phase uh lasted probably a good six or seven years and i just i made it my goal to always keep him happy and so if there was ever a disagreement or an argument i i mean instant i was jumping in to fix that and take care of it and cover everything up we had kids a couple of years into the marriage we had kids so i just got very occupied being a mom uh being a wife and everybody looked at us like they thought we were great together so for six or seven years, he was able to keep his mask on because, for whatever reason, um, you were exactly what he needed. Nar- pathological mm-hmm. narcissists, uh, whether the coverts, which are more secretive and and systematically um, manipulative, but you know, but on the QT, um, you were not a problem you did everything for him you enjoyed you loved you appreciated your role and um what and so i can i think of a narcissist thinking why why should anything be bad she gives me everything and makes me happy right when right when did things shift well it it shifted gradually i i definitely will say that until a couple of very significant milestones happen Mm -hmm. but I remember looking back, making in my head, I was making what I call my never again list. I'll never say it that way again. I'll never do that again. I'll never talk about this again. You know, that's my my never again list. And and it goes on forever. Like, I didn't realize how long my list was getting. Topics weren't safe to talk about. Um, Opinions definitely were not safe to be voiced. And and every time that I would, you know, would try and I would get met back with so much resistance or harshness, yeah. it just instantly went on my never again list and it just kept growing. So, so and it, so that went on for so years. It really, so it really wasn't because of your perspective of growing up, it really wasn't a honeymoon per se, um, because um, but consciously it probably was because if you did something to upset him, you made quick adjust, adjustments and there was no stress or uh, there was no conflict. But there were problems. But if someone's looking from the outside, there's problems happening right away. But you're absorbing them and not letting them feel 
consciously obvious. So it sounded like there was a lot of problems right away, but you were just so amenable to change and willing to accommodate him. And that must have taken a lot out of you over time. It very much so did. I mean, I was just, I became a contortionist. Okay, I'll turn this way. I'll turn that way. I'll, you know, it's like the the amoeba that just kind of gravitates and moves around. You talk about that dance, you know, and it's, I just, you want to turn this way, we turn this way. You want to move that way, we move this way. Uh, I became really, really good at it. And, and you said tired too. What, Exhausted. What, what, yeah, what was the impact <laughs> yeah. of that, um, of, of being this contortionist? So the impact was um, a couple of things that really started to take place. One is isolation from my friends, mm -hmm. because for starters, I didn't have time. I didn't have time to go have friendships because I was so busy keeping him at peace. Uh, another big reason was because it wasn't worth the price I paid at home. If I went and did things with friends, I got met with judgment and jealousy and you know, just that that silent treatment, cold shoulder, circular conversations, all the things. And so it wasn't worth it to me. So I actually sacrificed a lot of my own friendships, a lot of my own, you know, relationships with with girlfriends that I was that were an active part of my life. Uh, another effect that it had was I wasn't able to be the mom that I wanted to be. And I knew I could be because right. I was constantly consumed by my concerns over his reactions, his thing, his words, his you know, how would he react if I do this, if I do that? And so I was modifying my role with my kids to accommodate him. And question. it was not healthy. I have a question. Um, have you ever thought about that he knew what he was doing, that he um, knew he was doing something overtly or covertly to make you know what was wrong that could potentially upset him and change before he got upset? Because you're talking about you did anything to make him happy, but I'm wondering if there was something in the background, um, gaslighting, brainwashing, that he was giving you hints on what not to do that would make him unhappy. So the million dollar question is, is he aware of it or not? You know, and a lot of people ask me that is, do they know what they're doing or do they not? And, and I will say that you know, all this time that I that I was in that marriage with him and and mm -hmm. going through all of this, do I really truly think that he was trying to hurt us? I really don't. I don't think that um I don't think he's an evil, malicious person. I I honestly think that he is was a lot completely not aware of what he was doing. Um I think it was his own survival tactics from his childhood that were being triggered that caused him to interact with us in the way he was. Right. But when he, when I would have discussions about him with him about the anger that he was portraying to all of us, like he had no clue that anger is what had come out and anger is what had been shown. And, um, and so in that regard, do I think that things were happening that were subconscious for him? Yes. A hundred percent. Do I think there were things that he was doing that was communicating to me, there was going to be a problem before the problem ever came a hundred percent. So I'm, I'm not sure how much of it he was aware of. So I'm going to challenge you. So um, he was different with people, other people than you. So he was difficult, uh, not sensitive, not empathetic. I'm generalizing. So if I'm wrong, let me know. Yeah. But with you, if someone is, be, is different with one group of people and not another, 
then they're making adjustments and they're conscious of it. You know, if I'm looking, if I'm on a job interview <laughs> or on a first date, I'm going to be mm -hmm. much different than if I'm talking to my brother who just naturally annoys me. Um, and so, <laughs> so my, my suggestion, and, and of course, uh, we don't need to figure this out, but my suggestion is that, um, he was malicious because he made decisions of who he did what to based upon what you said. And he needed yeah. you to not think he was malicious to keep uh, uh, was keep it escalating to a point. Um, do you, so was there ever a clue that maybe he knew what he was doing and he had an idea of, why it benefited him or you, you think he was pretty much well, the, i think i think there's a weird combination there um i do think because he would treat us differently when other people were around right than when other people were not around so he knew what he was doing he, he knew what Olivia, he was doing yes he, he knew needed, what he was doing but he needed but, to know um he was oblivious and didn't know what was going on so he can play the no. victim now by yes. the way if i say something that doesn't feel right just say nah wrong <laughs> so so no it's the the problem is it's such a weird combination right i right. think his desire to be a good person was very genuine i think he desired to be, to be a, a good, good person according to be a good to, person he desired right. to be a good person according to what he needed right not I don't think he can do. make that connection as to what that really means. Right. So he he had a desire, narcissistic desire to um, look like a good person. He just had no ability to understand that included taking care of other people. Right. Which is right. And that, he's a narcissist, and we know that. So right, yeah. <laughs> right. And so that's where I think the conflict lies. Um, where where it's. You know, he knew because he would behave in a certain way when other people were around, he knew, you know, what it what it really should look like in a home, what what there should be, you know, interactions that are healthy and positive and good. But behind closed doors, he definitely was not capable of maintaining that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah again, you're painting a picture of his sociopathic traits. He knew what was right in order to survive you have to create an image an outside image in order to survive in society but right. when you're home the covert narcissist is lets the mass down and they are themselves right and and well it, when when other people were in the home it was like we were back in that dating time when he was fulfilling that perfect role yeah, he, yeah so he, it was a, it was part of the con game and yeah. uh, and uh so so please continue <laughs> <laughs> so the years just went by and I made so many excuses for him right, right. of, you know, well, he's just having a bad day or he's just not feeling well or he's stressed at work. Like I became the expert at excuses. Okay. Right. And I was making these excuses to our own kids and saying, you know, well, you know, daddy's just having a bad day today or he's not feeling good, whatever. And, and our kids were hurting, you know, um, they were definitely were hurting. And they're, it was they're the next generation. They're being just like you were, just like I was. We uh, we don't know that, but they're being hurt because they're a, a part of something that doesn't make sense. Right. Well, yes, the cognitive dissonance that's there is right. massive. 
because right. and even even in myself when i hear myself say well i don't think he ever meant to actually hurt us mm -hmm. and yet all of this is going on so i mean it it's still there's that that trying to make sense out of this is like trying to catch a ghost it'll make sense one minute and then it just completely disappears in front of you and that's what my kids were experiencing let me paraphrase it i'm trying to make sense of it is like catching a ghost and he made sure he was a ghost because um if he is an apparition and, and not easy to to identify then he gets to survive so mm -hmm. yeah he probably mm -hmm. probably was very conscious of um making sure that you or um couldn't see it because that probably made it made him last longer in a relationship yeah yeah well he got really good at when the anger came out the anger instantly fed into his victim role mm -hmm. okay you think did that on and or was it reactive i think it was reactive i think a large chunk of it was, i think the anger was reactive now the victim role that one i think there's definitely a little bit more purpose there so the uh, but the anger was a reactive so he there would be a narcissistic injury and then he would calculate um like covert narcissists and sociopaths do what do i need to do in order to get what i want which is get someone to stop doing something they don't like or to do something they want mm -hmm. and and that must have really it had to take a toll on on you yes yes definitely i mean i i physically it was taking a massive toll my body was one giant um wad of muscles okay mm -hmm. everything tense everything tight headaches constantly i was dropping weight um very mm -hmm. unhealthy uh and and still trying to to juggle all of this it was like i was trying to swim the atlantic holding two kids up because they're both drowning in this as well and i'm trying to make sense out of it right. uh, and so as this went forward you know i never actually considered you know, because of all the excuses and all sweeping everything under the rug i never truly considered that he actually was a mean person right and that just never crossed my mind he he can't be it wasn't even that okay is he maybe he is it was never even a consideration you have been listening to the covert narcissism podcast with your host renee swanson be sure to check out our website at www.covertnarcissism.com there you will find many resources just for you to help you on this journey you can also reach out to me by email at renee r-e-n-e-e -E, at cnglifecoaching.com those letters are c-n-g as in covert narcissism group i do look forward to hearing from you i wish you so much peace on your journey of healing